All right, we are back in our land of confusion. This might be a really good time to do the good, the bad, and the ugly. All right, according to The Week magazine, it was a good week last week for, shall we say, incursions. With the news that Poland accidentally invaded the Czech Republic last month. The story is that heavily armed Polish troops occupied a chapel, which was in fact 33 yards inside Czech territory for several days. Said Poland's defense ministry, the incursion was the result of a misunderstanding, not a deliberate act. It was corrected immediately. Radio Parallax is so far unable to confirm the rumor that the Polish troop commander has been hired by the White House to teach the president geography. And we do want to note that if any of our Polish listeners feel that we are in some manner slighting the Polish nation and turning this mishap into a sort of Polish joke, I would simply note that some of my best friends are Polish. And for his part, Mr. McMillan loves the sausage which he demands I clarify as not being a double entendre. It was, on the other hand, a bad week for the bald. A really bad week, actually, because it turns out bald people appear to be more likely to develop serious symptoms to COVID-19. That's at least according to new research from Brown University. Citing data from Spain, where 80% of COVID patients at one Madrid Hospital had little or no hair. Professor Carlos Wambler called baldness a perfect predictor of severity. For our bald listeners, we suggest that this is very preliminary research. As in so many aspects of COVID, more data is needed. It is our understanding that they're taking this very seriously, particularly as regards social distancing at the Hair Club for Men. And it was an Ugly week last week for what the week called even more extreme measures in the wake of updated advice from the New York City Health Department on having sex in the age of COVID-19. The New York officials are recommending that single people, quote unquote, be creative with, quote unquote, physical barriers like walls that allow sexual content while preventing close face-to-face contact. Now, personally, I'm thinking that Hasidic Jews probably sort of get what they're hinting at here or suggesting, but that a significant portion of our population has no idea what the hell they mean when they say you should be creative with physical barriers like walls. If I had a lot of time today, and I definitely don't, I would tell the story of an adventure down in Mulaje, Mexico, Baja, California, concerning advances made by a certain politician from California, a conservative Republican, in fact, who was, shall we say, extremely friendly to a group of uh, Canadian guys I was hanging out with back in the backpacker era. This misadventure, which did not go nearly as bad as it might have, marked the first time I became acquainted with the phrase glory hole. 
And if you, dear listener, are familiar with that phrase as well, now you may have some idea what the New York City Health Department must be talking about. I mean, walls that allow sexual contact while preventing close face-to-face contact? And, and you know, I'm kind of sorry I brought this up. Me too. Mr. McMillan is already doing some math on wall thickness. His preliminary numbers are not encouraging, and we're going to drop this subject like a hot potato. And note that we're not sure whether it was a good week for or bad week for Walmart, but Walmart this past week agreed to stop displaying African-American beauty products in locked cabinets. About a dozen Walmart stores in low-income neighborhoods have that policy, and management now agrees with critics that it's racist. Said civil rights activist Rashad Robinson, this is a long time coming. And we need to say a little bit more about race relations, which are much discussed these days. I went for a hike a few days ago and took a radio with me and was listening to uh, KGO, which used to be a bastion of great talk radio. And as I was listening, they were describing, uh, as part of this talk show, an attack that had taken place the night before in Golden Gate Park. Evidently, a certain contingent of social justice warriors had knocked down the statue of Father Unipero Serra. Now, Father Sarah has been much criticized for the, in essence, enslavement of the local Native American population that took place under the mission system. Now, the Padre is no doubt due for some criticism from what took place back in the 1700s, but I'm not sure that yours truly can approve of most of these actions against statues. Some? Some? Yeah. You talk about a statue to Nathan Bedford Forrest, and, uh, you know, I, I take up a sledgehammer. If you ever saw the Ken Burns special on the Civil War, and, and I hope you did, dear listener, you would you would know a little bit about Nathan Bedford Forrest. He was a competent military commander, but evidently famous for his cruelty. After the South lost the Civil War, Nathan Bedford Forrest decided to um, to fight back. So he founded the Ku Klux Klan. I know there's at least one statue up to him in the state of Tennessee. And you know, that ought to come down. But for God's sakes, can't sensible people get together and vote to remove it? This shouldn't require the action of vandals. Although in this particular instance, I would have some sympathy for the vandals. But I don't have any sympathy for the same squad that went around Golden Gate Park and evidently toppled the statue to Ulysses S. Grant. I presume they mistook him for a Confederate general. When in fact, General Grant, if you know your history, and we certainly hope you do, was in fact the Union Army commander that won the war and accepted the surrender of Robert E. Lee at Appomattox Courthouse in April of 1865. U.S. Grant went on to become the President of the United States in 1868. Having won the Civil War at great cost, President Grant didn't take any crap, shall we say, from the former Confederate states. Since it was his victory in the Civil War that freed the slaves, we're a little bit puzzled at why knuckleheads in Golden Gate Park decided to knock down his statue. As I was hiking along, listening to them argue and talk about, um, you know, these events, I was glad that we do not have, Mr. Miller and I, here a a show that directly interacts with the public. Oh, hell, maybe we will someday. But the problem is, when you invite random people into the discussion... Things can get a little bit scattered. At some point, a caller noted that 
there were claims now being made that Mary Poppins is racist. There is a scene in that celebrated, famous movie wherein Mary Poppins and the Dick Van Dyke character, who is a chimney sweep, apparently do a little number with um, soot on their faces. It was alleged that a professor somewhere was claiming that this was being done in blackface and therefore was inappropriate. Someone else called in to say, no, they just reviewed it via computer technology and noted that, no, it's just, it's just soot. They're not actually in blackface. And, you know, when it comes to these kinds of discussions, I think we need to show some discrimination. I, I mean discrimination in the good sense of the word, as in judgment, as in discretion. And as we conduct a long overdue discussion on race in this country, we, 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 we really do need that more than ever. I mean, you know, when the president lumps all the protesters together as thugs, that's a sad commentary on how polarized we remain. But for the most part, we are seeing the pendulum swing in a direction which is long overdue. On this program, was it two weeks ago, Ms. Merlin? We, we openly called for people, black people, people who support the rights of black people to vote, to get out there and raise hell about the fact that they are being disenfranchised. And you can bet your bottom dollar are going to be majorly disenfranchised in the upcoming November general election. It's a big issue. We're going to keep talking about it. I seem to have misplaced the card that Greg Pallast gave me when he spoke in Oakland last year, telling uh, the story as only Greg Pallast can about how votes are being suppressed in this country. Remind me again, Mr. Miller, we've, we've got to get Greg back on. How we've discussed things over the years is evolving. I'm as, I think, amazed as a lot of people to have noted that the New York Times did run an op-ed piece by a Senator Tom Cotton, Republican from Arkansas. It was headlined, Send in the Troops. Cotton called for an overwhelming show of force from military forces to crush nihilist, he called them nihilist protesters, who he said are simply out for loot and the thrill of destruction. Well, uh, there are some bad apples out there out for loot and the thrill of destruction, but dozens of Times journalists, mostly young reporters, expressed outrage at the op-ed, saying that this piece put black staffers in danger. Editorial page editor James Bennett came under such withering internal criticism that he resigned. With our country on edge, the New York Times decided that uh, Representative Cotton's inflammatory demand for troops on the streets was the equivalent of shouting fire in a crowded theater. Maybe that's a stretch, but the fact of the matter is, in America, we have a long tradition of not using the military to police the nation. As we reported on last week's program, the former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mike Mullen, said in the Atlantic.com that he was sickened by the week, the previous week's events wherein the president used the military to help clear a path for his photo op at the church. Said former Chairman Mullen, he was deeply worried that the men and women of our armed forces are being co-opted for political purposes by a president with open disdain for our Constitution. It's worthy of note that Defense Secretary Mark Esper infuriated Trump by publicly opposing his wish to invoke the Insurrection Act and send troops from the Army's 82nd Airborne Division onto the streets of our nation's capital. Our current chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Mark Milley, issued a pointed memo to all the armed services reminding them that their ultimate loyalty is to the Constitution, 
which gives Americans the right to freedom of speech and peaceful assembly. Writing in the New York Times, Jonathan Stevens has said the generals know an apolitical army is central to American democracy. If Trump persists in seeing the military as his personal police force, we may see its leaders engage in disciplined disobedience. Well, we hope so. In keeping with all of this, there was a meme being sent around referring to Trump supporters as a cult and saying that the cult is now saying that Generals Mattis, Powell, Milley, McCaffrey, Hayden, Mullen, Allen, and McRaven are traitors and that Flynn, the one who pleaded guilty to a felony, is our country's only true military hero left. They added the delusion is getting stronger. You know, sometimes I have to pause as we talk about things like this and and just be thankful that we have a right in this country to speak our minds. Well, within certain limitations. But it is refreshing that we can openly criticize our institutions. Although this does remind me of the old joke from the 70s, wherein two diplomats were arguing, an American and a Soviet. The American says, the thing is, in our country, we have the freedom to criticize our courts, our institutions, and our leaders. The Soviet responds, you got nothing on us. In the Soviet Union, we are also free to criticize your courts, your infrastructure, and your leaders. But again, as we're being critical or seeking to change things to make them better, we do need to exercise some discretion. I confess, I'm not sure that it's necessary for the Quaker Oats Company to rebrand Aunt Jemima pancakes and syrup products. Yes, it's true the image does have its roots in, uh, you know, the black mammy who took care of white families' children back in the early 20th century, 19th century. I mean, they could go for a different image. I mean, the people at The Onion certainly selected one. Said The Onion, in response to nationwide protests regarding police brutality and racial discrimination, food conglomerate Quaker Oats announced that after 130 years, it would replace its historically racist Aunt Jemima mascot with a black female lawyer who enjoys pancakes from time to time. Said The Onion, Quaker spokesperson Aaron Parsley explained that the former Aunt Jemima brand of syrups and pancakes mixes would now bear a logo depicting an African-American woman who wears a suit, carries a briefcase, and, and isn't an aunt per se, although she is godmother of the child of a dear friend she met as an undergraduate at Dartmouth. Adding, our new mascot is based on several real-life black women who are lawyers and eat pancakes some mornings when they aren't too busy litigating on behalf of the disadvantaged. You know, not to beat a dead horse, but I don't know why they have to mess with Uncle Ben. I always thought Uncle Ben looked pretty cool. Now, I do fully understand the need to make some changes, at least in the branding of Darkie Toothpaste. Actually, it's, it's no longer called Darkie. It's called now Darley and has been for the past 15 years. But while traveling in Southeast Asia many years back and in the need of toothpaste, I went into a store and found that widely available and evidently very popular was the brand then called Darkie. It featured a very dark-complected African man with a big, gleaming smile of white teeth wearing a top hat. It was, well, I guess you'd say a little bit stereotypical. They changed the name to Darley because Darkie was rubbing some people the wrong way. But uh, I saw on the web as of a few days ago, Darley is still out there. The logo has been modified and modernized a bit, but uh, I think some changes are still in the works. But on a more serious note, I want to quote from a piece in nymag.com by Jonathan Chait, 
which asks whether the woke left is trying to kill classical liberalism. Now, we've talked at some length on this program about the intolerant mindset, about safe spaces and free speech, which was once found only on college campuses, but has now migrated to the culture as a whole. It's grown more adamant amid the racial awakening following George Floyd's killing by police. At private companies, in politics, and at newspapers and websites, young progressives are demanding the firing, blacklisting, and or, and or censoring of anyone they deem insufficiently anti-racist. Now, we're not only talking about prominent older editors like James Bennett at the New York Times, who let that op-in recommended sending in the troops by, but also Lee Fang, described as a leftist reporter for the leftist TheIntercept.com. After sharing his interview with a black protester who expressed concern about non-police violence in his community, Fang was publicly accused of anti-blackness and kept his job only after writing a lengthy, groveling apology for his quote-unquote insensitivity. And no, I don't understand what's insensitive about it. A black person says, yes, violence in our community is an issue in general, and, and that's being insensitive? And, and all of this evidently has gotten uh, Matt Taibbi at Rolling Stone a bit riled up. In his newsletter, he said that if this madness is all a reaction to Trump, then why are the Twitter Robespierre's of the woke left so focused on persecuting heretics of their own ranks? David Shore, a 28-year-old Democratic data analyst who once worked on President Obama's re-election campaign, was recently fired for tweeting a link to research suggesting that violent protests risk a political backlash. Critics said that tweet reeks of anti-blackness. Said Taibbi, this inflexible orthodoxy is closer to cult religion than politics and has institutions from the New York Times, the Democratic leadership in Congress, kneeling in supplication and fear. But noted David French in thedispatch.com, it's not just the left. The climate of fear now gripping liberal newsrooms has a perfect analog in conservative media and Republican politics. Any criticism of President Trump will earn you death threats, vile insults from a Twitter mob, and expulsion. Andrew Sullivan in NYMag.com said America was founded on the classic liberal values of pluralism and free speech, but we should not forget this is also the country of the Scarlet Letter, Prohibition, and the Hollywood Blacklist. The totalitarian mindset that wants to punish even respectful disagreement is chillingly recognizable in American history and increasingly in the American present. All right, Mr. Miller tells me we've got about six minutes or so left. Let's talk about other stuff. By the way, if I wasn't sick to death of politics, I would talk about Trump's new foreign broadcasting CEO. But it deserves full attention and we don't have time. So next week. You also want to note that yours truly has been going through files that have been amassed over the past couple of decades for the purpose of talking about stuff on this show. And I cannot believe the amount of material we have out there, much of it very good, which means, of course, that we should talk about it. And that may require doing some extra shows over this summer. I got a feeling a lot of you out there are going to have some extra time on their hands in the months to come. And who knows, maybe Mr. Milne will finally get a chance to air his full story about that little mix-up about the plutonium from a few years ago. Shh. I'm coming to talk about a little bit of astronomy, but I think if I do, Mr. Milne might shoot me. So let's do two miscellaneous items and two brief obituaries. We're continually amazed in this program by some of the idiot ideas that come out of the mouths of economists. But none, 
No more than this piece. Apparently, a Chinese economist has proposed a novel solution to China's gender imbalance. Now, the one-child policy that was enforced in China from 1980 to 2016 led many couples to abort female fetuses so they could have a much-desired male heir. As a consequence, China has 35 million more males than females. In a column titled How to Be Happier for a Business News Site, Fudan University professor Yu Quang Ying lamented that men's physical and psychological needs are not being met. As a remedy, the academic proposed wife sharing. He argued it would be no problem for a woman to have two or more husbands in terms of sexual performance and housework. (laughs) Ning wrote, I guess he actually wrote this, it's common for prostitutes to serve more than 10 clients a day, adding that making meals for three husbands wouldn't take much more time than for two husbands. To his credit, Ng did admit that a wife's function, quote-unquote, does extend beyond providing sexual services or food. But I'm happy to report that did not save him. Social media promptly exploded with condemnation. Said one outraged user, are you studying Chinese people's happiness? I only see men's happiness. It seems pretty clear this idea is not going to catch on. And archaeologists say they have discovered cannabis residue on artifacts from an ancient temple in southern Israel, evidence that the drug may have been used in religious rituals in the biblical kingdom of Judah. Researchers have for decades tried to determine the composition of black deposits found on two limestone altars at the 8th century site in Tel Aral, 35 miles south of Jerusalem. A chemical analysis has now revealed the residues on one altar came from cannabis, which was burned atop dried animal dung. The lead author of the study said, We know from all around the ancient Near East and around the world that many cultures used hallucinogenic materials and ingredients in order to get into some kind of religious ecstasy. Adding, We never thought about Judah taking part in these cultic practices. The researchers believe that the worshippers burned the drugs to induce a high during ceremonies. All I can say to that is, oi! For a bit, we note sadly the passing of Jean Kennedy Smith. She was the last surviving sibling of President John F. Kennedy. And as an ambassador, she played a key role in the peace process in Northern Ireland. She passed away last week at age 92. Her obit notes that in 1993, Smith was appointed ambassador to Ireland by then-President Bill Clinton. As an ambassador, Kennedy played a pivotal role in the Northern Ireland peace process. Irish President Michael Higgins said last week, as ambassador, Kennedy played a pivotal role in the Northern Ireland peace process. And finally, we note, with sadness, the passing at age 103 of Vera Lynn. According to the AP, Dame Vera Lynn was the enduringly popular Forces sweetheart who serenaded British troops during World War II. Lynn hosted a wildly popular BBC radio show during the war called Sincerely Yours, in which she sent messages to British troops abroad and performed the songs they requested. The half-hour program came on during the highly coveted slot following the Sunday evening news. She once said, Winston Churchill was my opening act. September 2009, long after her retirement, Vera Lynn topped the British album charts with a hits collection titled We'll Meet Again, the very best of Vera Lynn. It reached number one, despite competition from the re-release of remastered Beatles albums. 
And, dear listener, I'm quite certain you are familiar with the work of Vera Lynn because the legendary black comedy Dr. Strangelove ends with her voice singing We'll Meet Again as things spool around the world, which are, well, let's just say a bit of a mess. Again, don't know where, don't know when, but I know we'll meet again some sunny day. You know, it is a pretty good song. You've listened to Radio Parallax, which was produced, as they all are, by Edward McMillan. I'm your host, Douglas Everett, and we will see you next week. Drive the dark clouds far away So will you please say hello To the folks that I know Tell them I won't be long They'll be happy to know That as you saw me go I was singing this song Again, don't know where, don't know when, but I know we'll meet again some sunny day.